Hey everyone, welcome back to the M&M Hockey Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Alex Metzger, along with me is my co-host, Chase McCallum, and today we have a bunch to talk about again. Um, hoping to get this out Monday night because this is, uh, I don't know, part of what we're talking about will definitely stay relevant no matter what, but uh, another part of it will not um, because the second round is well underway, so we'll be giving our thoughts on that, but uh, it wouldn't be fitting to not start with the Game 7 that uh, I think everyone who listens to this podcast knows we are going to talk about. Um, there's a couple of things we got to talk about from the last one since it ended, but uh, there's no real reason to to dodge around it, Chase. I, I think we should just get right into Game Seven, Toronto and Montreal. Yeah, let's start there. Um, as everyone knows, I, you know it's it's been a week since the game happened now, and uh, like literally the the next series is almost over, and we'll get into that after as well. Um, but uh, yeah, the the Montreal Canadiens completed the comeback. Uh, Toronto Maple Leafs completed the choke. Uh, whatever way you really want to put it, it doesn't really matter. Um, but uh, Montreal comes back from three three one down in the series to take Game Seven, and Game Seven was. A bit of a snooze fest, to be honest. It really looked like Toronto was playing not to lose from the very first puck drop, and as soon as they got behind one nothing, you could almost tell it was game over. They weren't coming back. The second the Gallagher goal went in, like I was just purely apathetic by the end of the game because when the Gallagher went in, every Leafs fan knew they were losing when the Gallagher goal went in. So we had a full like hour and a half to accept the loss uh, before it even happened. So that was yeah. fun. It was like, it's one of those things where, so like I, I was, and I, I still am, I think that, you know, we'll, we'll get into what this means for Toronto and such, but um, uh, one of the things I would say is that, you know, like I thought they, they obviously deserved a better result in this series. I thought they were the better team games one through six. Um, you can argue they definitely came out slow in games five and six. Um, game six, the first two periods were were pretty slow. And, you know, game five, the first period was pretty slow. But at the end of the day, they still end up winning, you know, the expected goals battle, the Corsi four battle and everything. And, and that doesn't matter because they didn't win on the on the score sheet at the end. But uh, the idea that, you know, you can't be unlucky is something we're going to be bringing up a lot. And, and you know, they, they definitely deserved a better fate. But in game seven, they didn't. I mean, credit to the Habs as well. They they did what they had to do. Price looked unstoppable. They let Price get hot, and he stayed hot like that. But I really didn't think the the Leafs made it hard on Price in Game Seven at all. Like they were rushing their shots. You could you could tell they were panicking, and they just didn't really get anything good going. Yeah, they just looked unbelievably flat. Like they didn't really look dangerous. They had like one power play where they looked dangerous, but they didn't look like a team that's just electric offensively at all, or even particularly close to it. No. And I think that was, you know, the biggest difference. Uh, you could tell the pressure was on and, um, you know, every narrative has been uh, said since this game said it lost. Um, the takes were wild and they are going to be wild all summer long. I saw today, one of the Boston writers um, was trying to say they should trade Tavares at half at 50% retain, trade Nylander, and then pick up Bobrovsky at 50% retain. And then he conveniently goes, oh, by the way, I think Boston would be a great fit for Tavares at 50% retained. It's like, I'm sure you do, buddy. Um, but yeah, the, the, the takes have been wild. Uh, they will continue to be wild. Um, they've definitely settled down over the, you know, and naturally like they were just flying for 24 hours, trade Marner, blow this up, blow that up. Um, it's, it's settled down now. I think now that the dust settled, it's pretty clear. There won't be a minor trade. 
um, unless it's a trade that they would have done any other offseason. You know, Shanahan and Dubas came out and they said there won't be a minor trade or anything like that. But, um, um, you know, just give me your thoughts kind of heading into the offseason. You know, what were your thoughts right away? And now that you've had a week to digest everything, where, where do they go from here? So first, like, I was, like, I was obviously unhappy and, like, specifically with Marner, he just seemed to be, like, the flashpoint for all these fans' anger. And I was the same thing. But uh, over the past week, I've kind of just, like, like, we we have this group chat. And shout out to, I know half of them listen, at least. So uh, shout out to those guys. They know who they are. And all the Leafs fans in it. Every like when you see all your Leafs fans friend melting down, but then like you and Brady in it, who are not Leafs fans, are like, "Hey guys, you probably shouldn't do anything drastic." Like to me, if the non-Leafs fans are saying you shouldn't do anything ridiculous, that's a pretty good indication that you're probably being overly emotional if you do think they should do anything ridiculous, right? If that's a good place to start, take people whose words or whose thoughts mean like are meaningful. And if they're, they can remove emotion, you should probably be regressing your thoughts toward them. So then over the kind of week or so, I've been slowly moving towards that point. And now I'm at the point where I think it would be patently insane to trade Mitch Marner right now. Yeah. I mean, so obviously I tweeted this the night of the loss where I said, you know, I might just given the takes that were flying around that night, I was like, this might be the first time I get ratioed in a while. I don't usually, try to say anything too controversial on Twitter, or at least, you know, that I know I can't back up anyways, but uh, I tweeted like the, I think, I honestly think the best avenue forward for this team is run it back again with obviously you're, they're going to need to reload the depth. There's changes that are going to be na- need to be made. They're losing someone to Seattle. They're going to need to find a, a goaltender to kind of tandem with Jack Campbell. But um, in terms of, you know, overall picture, reload the depth, try and find some more pieces and, you know, go at it again with this core, I think is the best possible option. Um, you know, there, there's other options out there. Um, but like the only way you win an, a Marner trade, I think, is if you trade him for Jack Eichel. And even then, if you do that right now, I think you're still trading Marner at his lowest possible value. But if you're getting a player like Eichel in return, as long as you don't have to pay significantly more on top of it, um, you know, I, I think that would be something they do. But I just I, I don't really see that being something that happens mostly because it's the NHL and that stuff never really happens. But um, yeah, like j- just trading, trading Marner to trade Marner for the sake of it is it's not going to ever work out. Exactly. And like with the Eichel thing, everybody's like, cause at first everybody's just like, fuck him, trade him no matter what. He just can't be on the team. Then everybody calms down. We chill out a little more logic into the situation, even though it's still highly emotional, but then very, very quickly, everybody reached a point where it's like, well, you only trade Marner if you're winning the trade. It's like, well, no shit. That statement is effectively useless. Like, of course, if you get offered Connor McDavid for Mitch Marner, you take it. Like, you were trading Austin Matthews for Connor McDavid if even if you won the cup and Austin Matthews won the consmite. Why? Because if you can flat out win a trade, you simply do it. So, like, we very quickly came to that point, which is almost useless to say, because, of course, if you can trade a player for a flat out win, you just do it no matter what. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, you know, and obviously how often that happened because the Buffalo Sabres are thinking the exact same thing. Like we're not trading Jack Eichel unless we can win the trade. Right. And that's just what you should be trying to do, you you know, and it is easier. Like, 
it feels like sometimes it's easier said than done because we say that all the time, yet you see Ryan O'Reilly traded for absolute scraps of nothing or whatever. But um, yeah, that's the idea behind it. I, I think if you're Toronto, it might, I, I again, I, I feel like the, the majority of people have calmed down now and have accepted probably that this is the core coming back, but um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what they do. I, I think uh, a fair criticism from some, but not from all is that questioning what they did at the deadline and even loading up on their depth. I think there's, I do think there's some revisionist history with this year and it's because they, you know, uh, Matthews and Martyr didn't show up, but then once Matthews and Martyr didn't show up, the depth didn't do a ton. You know, Kerfoot looked really good. Galchenyuk looks pretty good, except for one very specific pass that cost him a game. And obviously Nylander was a star, but, um, you know, people seem to be kind of pushing back on the, well, they shouldn't have been loading up on grit all year. And, Again, I think that's fair, but there's also a bit of a revisionist history. Jason Spezza was amazing this year. You know, Joe Thornton, he probably should have been rested at times, so he's a little bit more rested for the playoffs, but it's not like Joe Thornton was bad this year. And, you know, Wayne Simmons was fine as well for $1.25 million or whatever they paid him. Like, it's not like there was... Like it's not like they let go of not like six Carter Verhaggies to go get a bunch a bunch of grit guys. Like this is just kind of what they afforded or could afford, and you know they did the best they can. I feel like there is a bit of revisionist history going on with how they loaded their depth up here. A hundred percent, and that's the weirdest thing because like the Leafs lost this series in Game Seven, a series in which they outscored and, if we're being honest, over the course of the series, grossly outplayed the Montreal Canadiens. Like. And then depending on who you talk to, they need to upgrade their defense core. They need to upgrade their depth or they need to trade the star players because they can't be winning the playoffs or whatever. But like you can't play a series where you have a 56% goals for percentage and then it be everyone's fault you've lost. Yeah. Like it's, it's that simple. And like, I don't like, again, like it's, there's definitely blame to be put on the, the Toronto Maple Leafs, but I feel like people just don't want to accept that it's also Carey Fultz price. They lost, you know, like Carey yeah, like, price was great. Like, and he was good. Yeah. And his save percentage was lower than Jack Campbell, although adjusted his was much better because the Leafs are a way better hockey team or whatever. And also just like, like losing a series in which you have a 50, I think it rounded up to a 57% goals for percentage, like is objectively extremely unlucky. Yeah. Like I think it, someone did a research on it about they, were they the fourth most dominant team over a series to lose it, I think, or something like that over the past, like since the, uh, we can track advanced stats anyways, it was something like, like, it's been like, a very short handful of times where teams have dominated more than that and still lost the series. Exactly. And then the other line that was going around too, was like, Oh, well they won the XG battle or whatever. And they didn't, they did everything except uh, show up on the score sheet. It's like, well, actually if you sort of define the score sheet as the thing that where the goals go, they did show up on the score sheet. They just lost somehow in spite of that. Yeah. Like they outscored Montreal over seven games. It was just, there was, four two one games or whatever that went Montreal's way. And, you know, that's, again, people want to just say, well, you can't be unlucky three years in a row. What, why not? Like. Yeah, you absolutely can be. Well, that's, <laughs> that's what inspired my, my article this week. Like I couldn't believe it when everybody's like, oh, it can't be bad luck anymore. Mitch Marner's goalless streak in the playoffs spans like 60 shots. 
you absolutely the fuck can be unlucky for 60 shots in the playoffs. Yeah, absolutely. And just like, yeah, like Austin Matthews was good last year, but couldn't buy a goal because they faced 960 goaltending or whatever it is this year. I thought he looked okay. I didn't think he looked great, but again, like that's how often does Austin Matthews go seven games where he only scores one goal. That's I, I'd like to me, that's more bad luck than it is killer instinct or anything like, like killer instinct was a word that got thrown around a lot this week. And it's just like, man, like, I don't know. Like it's, I get like Montreal was a team that, you know, they, they probably should have beat, but their, their captain went down game one. They lose one of their three best defensemen, arguably their best defenseman halfway through the series. And they still play Montreal and just ran up against a hot goaltender where two of their guys couldn't, their two best players, they pay $20 million to couldn't score. And yeah, you need answers for that. But at the same time, like it's, I don't know. It's not like they got just drastically outplayed or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. And the worst part about it all is now all the analysis is just so riddled with hindsight bias too, where people are like, Oh, well, of course they weren't doing this in the playoffs. They never do or whatever. And the best way we can tell that this is bullshit is because prediction markets exist. And if everybody was actually that aware that Marner and Matthews were going to be shit and that the Leafs can't do anything in the playoffs, you would have bet really large sums of money on Montreal because the odds were aggressively in Toronto's favor. But of course, no one came out and said that's what they did because them being not clutch, like everybody knows it's not a trend that you can bet on going forward. It's just shit that happens. And in hindsight, you have to explain it away somehow. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like I think the one fair criticism, especially uh, Dubis, would be how he approached the deadline. Um you yes, know, it looks it, it looks even worse now when you realize that he gave up picks for Riley Nash. That's now a sixth round pick because he played two games out of their seven, which is technically 25% of the team's playoff games. Um, you know, I, I get not wanting Hutchinson to play in a playoff game, but did giving up Dave Riddich uh, was a third for Dave Riddich for two games. Um, but those were both the defendable moves. If you thought you were making a deep run, the one that I just, I don't think it was defendable at the time. People loved it. And this is why, this is where I get mad because the mainstream media absolutely praised this move for, for months. And now it's, Oh no, it's actually Dubas's fault. It's like, no, no, no. You praised that this guy gave quote unquote gave up on analytics and did exactly what you've been asking for. And this team still got bounced in seven games. But the move I'm talking about is obviously picking up, um, Nick Foligno and more and more so not the Nick Foligno pickup, but actively saying they did not want Taylor Hall and letting Boston pick up Taylor Hall for a second round pick. And that was it. Um, while you spent a first plus on Nick Foligno. Yeah, exactly. And then, cause that move was obvious at the time. If you thought through a certain lens that we tend to use, but like there were a lot of people just convinced that this was genius by dudes which is weird because usually it's the nerds that are more willing to defend Dubas, but the opposite was true this time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so, yeah, I would say that's the one big thing. Um, people were calling for Dubas's head. Uh, that's crazy. I, I still think he's done overall a pretty good job. Uh, I definitely think there's improvements. I hope that he realizes, you know, well, I mean, I hope from a, just, you know, a fun team building standpoint, I'm sure you hope as a fan that, you know, he realizes that going forward next year, he should not listen to, the tropes of this stupid media market, but instead just try and add as much skill and scoring as you can. Like I just, I can't get over the fact that it's like grit wins cups, analytics don't win cups. When the Tampa Bay freaking lightning just won a cup last year, going four skilled scoring lines, 
But no, it, they, somehow they credit to grid. It's like, no, no, no. They won because all four lines could score, not because two of their lines went out and hit people. Like, yeah, exactly. And they won because, like, Point and Kucherov went absolutely scorched earth. Yeah, and Vasilevsky played every second of the bubble and was amazing. And, oh, that Victor Hedman guy played 30 minutes a night at an elite level the entire time. Exactly. Like, it's just the best is, like, almost every narrative about winning in the playoffs can be debunked just so easily that isn't any deeper than just like, hey, play good players and hope to get lucky eventually. Because like people always talk about, oh, defense wins championships. Like, well, the Penguins won with Ron Hainsey on their first line. You're like, oh, well, you can't win with a guy like Alex Ovechkin, of course, until you do win. And I'm pretty sure he wins the con Smythe. Like when the lessons people try to take away from playoff hockey that go any more specific than have a bunch of good players, almost invariably end up getting falsified at some point in the near future. Yeah, absolutely. It's just so, yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things where uh, going forward, like this team's still in a good spot, you know, obviously they're going to be in a much tougher division this year. And, uh, you know, we're going to get to the second round matchup in Ryle. And I, I think they're really kicking themselves watching how Montreal and Winnipeg's going because uh, it's pretty clear, you know, that they, what I think they would have also just marched to the, the conference finals here. Like it looks Montreal will. And um, you know, like going into this summer uh, they should be happy with Jack Campbell. You know, I thought down the stretch, he really proved himself. He looked awesome in the, in the playoffs, you know, obviously that Gallagher Gallagher goal was horrible, but uh, you know, bad goals happen sometimes. And that was the only real bad one I thought of the entire seven game playoffs. And um, you know, so at 1.65, he's a good starting point. I think, they should go look for a guy like uh, maybe a Peter Morazic or someone like that to, to be a tandem with Jack Campbell. Um, but then, you know, on the blue line, you have Muzzin, Riley, and Brody definitely coming back. And then uh, it depends on how the expansion draft goes. Maybe they'll protect Justin Hall. Maybe they lose him. Um, and then same with the front. You know, the four big guys are going to be coming back. You have to figure out what you're doing with Zach Hyman. Um, and, you know, Mikheyev's going to be coming back. Spets is probably going to be coming back. Um, and then, you know, it depends on what happens with Kerfoot and the expansion draft as well. And you have about six or seven forward spots. You've got to figure out how to fill and, and what to do with it. So they have a lot of options here, really. Come, you know, they're not going to have a ton of cap space to work with, but more, more than they have had in past years. I'm definitely interested to see what they do with it. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what they route they go. What do you want to see them do? Um, I, I think... Well, I think if you're looking at the blue line, Sandine should take a spot. In the I would probably go four and four. like I'd probably protect Hall over Kerfoot. I, yeah, I would probably protect Hall. I think just because yeah. I, like, I I don't know. Like I, I do think there's some value to you know maybe seeing if you can trade Alexander Kerfoot for some you know a pick or something like that. But I don't know how many teams are really going to want him for 3.5 for two more years because he looked really, really solid in the playoffs, but my God, like he had a horrible year this year. Like he did not play good during the regular season. Yeah. He had an ugly regular season and they just kind of couldn't find something that worked with them. And they did in the playoffs, him and Nylander clearly worked together, but like, that's not going to happen going forward. Like they're not ripping Nylander, Kerfoot, Galchenyuk as their second line next year. No. And, you know, I, I think, and this is where, you know, I, I tweeted out, I think as well, like um, fairly or not, this is where Dubas really needs to make his money. He chose to make pay these massive contracts. And uh, again, I, I think you can build a team like that, but now the hard part is going to be finding legit depth. 
what, uh, you know, what uh, Dubas is going to have to do is going to go find guys like what um, Florida almost did this year. Anthony Duclair, um, uh, Carter Verhage, obviously like, like guys of that, um, that name, right. Where it's like, you can sign them to a one or two year deal for $1.2 million and you need to hit on them breaking out. And that's obviously way easier said than done, but that's why he's being paid the money. And this is kind of the situation he's put himself in by, you know, leaving this little money. And I think, that's the way he needs to approach it. You know, even just staying on Florida, Alexander Wenberg's going to be a UFA this year. I think he's a name, you know, maybe they, they try and explore for that third line or something like that, but they're going to need to find some depth for their third and fourth lines that can actually help score. And, um, you know, they're going to have to go to the bargain bin, but the good thing for them is every year there seems to be guys in the bargain bin, you know, like Josh Levo made 700 K again last year. He would be a name. I would still obviously always look to, you know, bring back. I, I never think he's a bad option, but you know, they're really going to have to find a guy that, you know, maybe you don't think he's going to be a breakout guy, but he ends up being that. And, um, again, like I, I don't have a name just off the top of my head, but that's also why I'm not the GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs right now. Yeah, exactly. Like Dubas really has to put his biggest analytics staff in the league to work and find someone who can score in that bottom six and pay them like 800 K. Yeah. And like, I've seen people say like, Oh, they should go after like Blake Coleman. It's like, that's great. But like Blake Coleman's projected contract, I'm pretty sure is like three and a half, four million dollars. The Maple Leafs can't afford that, like it or not. Yeah. And like, if they do, it's like, Oh, well you trade Kerfoot a pick and then you get Blake Coleman are you in a better spot like sure but not not hugely so no and your teacher's probably tying more money up in Blake Coleman long term than he would be in Kerfoot anyways right and like I don't like I don't think if if they could do that I would not be angry I think that would be a good move for the Leafs because you would get a draft asset back which they desperately need they need to start refilling the uh, cupboards here but I I don't know like what do you want to see them do this summer I want to see Dubas do something that I thought he was going to do when he came in, but he hasn't really leaned in fully yet. Like if they want to leave like one line, that's more of a four checking line, kind of like the Angval and uh, McKay of line, whatever. But I just want to see them roll like all offense. Like you have your strength, like just lean into it. Yeah. I mean, like, it's not like they were that far. Like if you replace uh, Felino with Taylor Hall this year, like, how, those lines just look so much better. And then obviously Tavares being injured just threw everything out of whack because if anyone loses an $11 million player, yeah, their team's going to be uh, uh, pretty screwed, you know? like. Well, that's the thing. The Leafs, as much as, like, people are like, oh, you don't get an excuse. It's five years in a row, which is fair. Like, the Leafs don't really deserve excuses. You get less of an excuse, that's for sure. Yeah, but, like, it's just a fact that, like, the Leafs' biggest strength is that they get to run John Tavares and Austin Matthews down the little middle. Like, you took away their biggest strength. Yeah, well, like, if the Colorado Avalanche lost Nathan McKinnon and lost in round one or, and then, like, they're still getting dummy by Vegas right now. We'll get to that eventually, too. But, you know, like, if the Avalanche lost McKinnon or, like, obviously Kadri got suspended. And, you know, I would say Kadri's nowhere, obviously nowhere near as good as Tavares is right now, especially with how much he struggled under the radar this year. But like, like I, people would be like, they would use that as an excuse. Hell, I've seen it in Colorado. People are saying, yeah. even with Kadri struggling, this shows how important he is to the team because they've been getting dummy by Vegas three games in a row. It's like, it's just natural that that's going to be built in because that's what happens, you know? And then when you amplify that to like, 
obviously way more aggressive amount of your cap. And some of that is obviously the lease took on that risk. They need to know that is a risk you're, you're taking on when you sign half your cap and four players, but um, you know, yeah, you it, it, yeah like at the, but at the same time, it's just like, if anyone's losing their third or fourth, third best forward, like they're going to be in tough no matter what. Yeah. Well, it's like when Pittsburgh, not that he's as good as Malkin, in his prime or whatever, but like when Pittsburgh's biggest strength was having two of the best centers in the world, much like Toronto's is now. And one of them was hurt either Sid or Malkin. Nobody really batted an eye when they were disappointing playoffs. And they got that benefit of the doubt because they won, but like still in any given year, if one of them hurt, nobody was like that shocked that they couldn't win a series. And and that's what happened this year too. Like Malkin was clearly hurt. And now this year was obviously Tristan Jari just absolutely shitting the bed, but like, It was a built-in excuse for them too. It's like, oh, like they still dominated despite Malkin being clearly injured. Like, I thought this was a good team. It's like, okay, but like, and again, like you, you get a lot more excuses when you win three cups in, in eleven years, and that's totally and fair. And you deserve but, more. Yes, excuse. but it, it doesn't make it not true that you know Toronto lost eleven million dollar player as well, and and that threw things way out of line. Yeah, and like it's still hilariously disappointing that they lost, even without John Tavares, because they are still a demonstrably better team than the Habs without John Tavares. But yeah. when a series goes down to the wire like that, your eleven million dollar captain being in is probably the difference. Yep, and um, you know, I, I will say credit to the Habs as well. I thought you know if there was one way they were going to beat the Leafs, that had to be it. They weren't getting in a shootout with the Leafs and winning. We knew that. Like they weren't winning five, four games against the Leafs in track meets. And so they, they played the way they had to. And uh, guess what? They're rolling in round two. And, um, you know, again, I bet you this is you know, painful for the Leafs fans, but it is nice being right once in a while. And um, how many times did we say this year, if the Jets and Canadians were matched up in the playoff series, it would probably be a, a coin flip to the point where we'd almost favor the Canadians. And my God, that is quite what is happening right now. Yeah, I forget exactly what we said last week, but I do remember when we were talking about who the Leafs would prefer to play in the first round. We both said the Jets. And yep. I feel pretty good about that. Like, and like three months ago, we or like two months ago, we said when the Jets were sliding too, like we know this isn't a good team. There's a good chance that they could just get bounced by anyone. They're an impressively bad team for just like how good of results they seem to get. Like they're they're not a playoff team. They're like a 22nd place team with Connor Hellebuck. Yeah. Like, and like I, people just want to galaxy brain themselves into that Euler series too. in the sweep, it's like, well, like Hellebuck had a nine fifty three, and that was after letting in seven goals over the last two games of the series. Like I, like we, there's not much more to say than that. Yeah. Like you're, you're not, winning when players when goalies have a series like Hellebuck did. Now yeah, you're usually not wet No, like the last the last goalie I can think of that probably won with any or sorry lost with a, a say percentage like that is do you remember when the, the Golden Knights first year they went on a cup run. They went on the cup run obviously. The first round they swept the LA Kings but Jonathan Quick, I think, actually ended up with like a 940 save percentage in those playoffs because uh-huh. every yeah. game ended like one nothing or whatever. But like that is the only example I can think of like a goalie having a legitimately that good of a a playoff and still losing. Like it just it doesn't happen when your goalie plays that four good games like that. You don't lose those games, you know. I think Hello or Colby uh, might have had a series like that too back in the day. But yeah, it's really really rare. 
And even I, I'm even over exaggerating. Quicks. He he posted a nine twenty one. Oh wait, no, no, that was that was the regular season. Never mind. I gotta try and find his playoff numbers because they were absurd. But um, yeah, like it's just it's one of those things where you like you really you don't lose those series often, and it would say way 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 more about your team and how just pathetic it is if you did lose it. And um, you know we're seeing it now with Winnipeg, and obviously Shifley uh, missed game two and three. He will miss game four uh, and game five if there is one. Um, that was a disgusting play. Like that was to that me, was, that was worse than the Kadri hit. Like I, the Kadri hit was worse in terms of him just getting the head. But I honestly don't think Kadri was trying to end a guy's career there. Mark Shifley looked like he was trying to end Jake Evans career. Yeah. And the, and it's so obvious that he's trying to hurt him because like Mark Shifley, at least in his head, I'm sure believes him and many of his teammates are like some of the best offensive players in the league. They're only down by one goal with a minute left, and he takes his stick away from the net. Like, he allows that puck to go in. Yeah. Or like, and, like, and he was being a goon for the previous couple shifts, too, just trying to hurt people. Like, it's insane. Also, I just pulled up quick stats. 0-4 with a 947 save percentage, 1.5 goals against average, um, and a 4.5 goal saved above average. That's disgusting that he lost. <laughs> Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, like the Shifley thing, like, I I can't believe they didn't suspend him for at least six games and just got him out of the series. Like, and again, that's department of player safety. Like, and it was just so clear by like the red line in, he was just trying to hit the dude. Yeah. Cause like, he doesn't, he's like stops taking full strides at some point, but he had like six leading up to that. Yeah, and like there, there's a video of him back checking on a two on one that led to like think the two one goal or whatever before, and he's not doing anything. It's like him back checking when there's an empty net, and he's clearly not going to get to the puck. It's just like, and you just watch him side by side. It's like, man, like that was just such a disgusting play, and he deserves every second of that suspension. Is probably lucky he didn't get more. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, yeah, I would I was shocked they didn't try to get him out of the series, especially when you have like the. Uh, Edmonds and stuff saying basically it's gonna like vigilante justice go for him and I would blame him for saying it but like you know that's gonna happen if you let Shifley back in the series and you don't want that to happen if player safety is in your name literally like yeah yeah like and everyone knew that was going to be the case whether you know he said it or not I think it's a little stupid of Edmondson to say that because if something does happen even if like Imagine the John Tavares situation happens. It's purely accidental. People are absolutely going to believe it was on purpose, right? But, um, you know, so I probably wouldn't have said that if I were him. But um, it might not matter anyways because this series looks like it could very well be over in four or five. Yep. And they they play again tonight. So they they start in under two or two and a bit hours from when we're recording right now. So probably when this podcast is going up, they will be playing. And by the time people are listening, they will know if this game's going, if the series has gone five or if it's over, but um, you know, three, nothing down is a hard series to come back from. I don't know if anyone's done it since LA in 2014. Yeah. Especially because like, because of the way the Habs play too. Like I still don't think the Habs are good, even though, can beat Toronto, but and no, are the but I, I do they're think like they're. What's our? Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I was gonna say I, I don't think they're good, but I do think they're much or at least better than the Jets. Yeah, I think they're better than the Jets, and what the they they really remind me of is a team like a football team in 2020 that can't pass to save their life, 
but can run the football really well. So, like, they can just grind the game to a halt once they're up. And once they're down, they're screwed. Like, watching Montreal, like, when they actually tried to get into a track meet, the Leafs, it was very clear who the better team was. But, like, they don't ever need to do that. They just need to squeak out one minute of four games. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that is exactly – I just looked it up. No team has come back since 2014. There's only – it's only happened four times. Toronto um, – be, uh, came back to beat the Red Wings in 1942, the Cup Finals. Uh, in 1975, the Islanders put up four straight against the Penguins. 2010, Flyers put up on Boston, and obviously Kings on San Jose in the first round, 2014. Um, and then there's been five times where the team has come back to Game 7 and lost it. Uh, two of them were actually in 2011. That was the last two times that happened. Chicago came back but lost to Vancouver in the conference quarterfinals, and Detroit came back but lost to San Jose. Um, so it's just it's very, very hard to come back from three down. And, yeah, as you said, there's all it takes basically is Montreal getting one, like, fluke little goal, and then they're going to shut that game down and make it absolutely hell for you to score. Yep, they need to get a Gallagher-style goal once and then – win 2-1 and they have four shots at it and I'm going to be absolutely floored if they don't do it. Yep. And yeah, I, man, I don't know. We'll, we'll wait for a third round preview, but oh man, I could see, uh, I could see it just being on the a one way route uh, in the conference final, but I, I hope not. Like I want to see close hockey obviously. So, but you know what the um, worst part about the Leafs not advancing for hockey as a whole is going to be for this summer. What when the when the Habs get just absolutely freaking annihilated every single game they play against uh, whoever they do have to play Colorado or Vegas, and everybody uses that as evidence that the North Division is actually as bad as everyone had been saying all year. So we have to poo-poo Connor McDavid's best season of our lifetime. Yeah, I thought about that yesterday too. I was like, this is not going to be. Yeah, if if the third round turns out like, you know, we think it might where it's four or five games, it's not even close. Um, you know, people are definitely going to, that narrative is never going to go away. But uh, um, yeah, I mean, let's hope, uh, you know, the third round is good, but we'll get to that eventually. Uh, there's still lots of other stuff to talk about. Um, obviously, well, let's start with the second round stuff. And then the, obviously there's a couple of rumors we got to get into as well. But um, uh, let's take a look at the other matchups. Uh, Colorado, Vegas. This has been more lopsided for the other one way than the other than we thought it would have been. Uh, the Avalanche absolutely dominated Vegas in game one, one seven one. Ryan Reeves got suspended. Uh, I'll get your take on that suspension as well. But the next three games, the Golden Knights absolutely have dominated. It hasn't even been close. Uh, the the Avs shouldn't have even been close in this series, but it's tied two two because of Grubauer. Um, and honestly, the last two games were close because of Grubauer. But the Golden Knights have just been all over the Avalanche um, and the avalanche haven't seemed to have an answer. Um, uh, this is pretty surprising because this avalanche team, you know, we've talked about it a lot, how dominant they have been this year. Yeah. This is their worst stretch of play this entire season. And like, it begs the question is like Nathan McKinnon hurt or something. Yeah. I don't know. Like, like, I don't like after seeing game one, you wouldn't think so because he was just flying yeah. over the ice. Yeah. Like they annihilate. This has been, the weirdest series in the world. Like I was super high on Colorado and like, I, I kind of can't believe this. Well, I was high in Vegas and I still didn't think this would be the case. Like I, yeah. I thought, I thought Vegas was a, you know, I was giving Vegas much more of a shot than you were, but like, yep. 
even then I still thought it would be at best just a 50 50 battle or like one where Vegas maybe gets slightly outplayed, but squeaks it out. But like, I did not see just pure domination through four games and them being literally probably like unlucky that it's not three, one heading into game five. Yeah. Like their average uh, shot differential is like plus 20 for Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, insane. It's been absolutely incredible. Like they just, it's been, yeah, pure dominance on one side since, and it was funny because game one was the opposite way around. Like Vegas just, you could tell that Vegas had just played a game seven, two nights earlier. Uh, Colorado is coming off of like seven days rest or whatever, after sweeping the blues. And it was just all one-sided, but then they got two days off. Vegas kind of got to, um, recollect themselves and uh, you know they came back and they have not looked back since so um, we'll definitely see where this one goes but it's been shocking really yeah it's been absolutely stunning and especially because like I'm pretty convinced this series is basically the Stanley Cup final yeah I mean we say that but then you know it's obviously you gotta like uh, the, the Lightning are a team as well which we'll get to yeah, and even the Hurricanes are pretty good as well. Like, so yes. it was a Stanley Cup final in the sense of the way Pittsburgh Washington used to be, where like you could conceivably see any, anyone else winning or plenty of other teams winning, but like they're the two best teams in the league, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the, they finished like that in the standings. This is the number one and number two seed in the entire NHL based on points. And it's funny because in the North, the 14th and 19th seeds they're playing right now in Montreal and Winnipeg, but um, <laughs> and, and hey, like again, that, that's kind of more of a COVID thing than anything else, right? Like, what can you do about that? But um, um, yeah, like uh, this is uh, definitely it reminds me of the um, Pittsburgh Washington kind of thing. But um, you know, Hurricanes and Lightning, that's been a pretty good series too. Where uh, the Hurricanes, I think, have been the unlucky team. They're down three one, and I think you know, at worst, they should be tied two two. Um, they have really played well and just. Vasilevsky's played better and they haven't uh you know they, they haven't they they weren't able to score on Vasilevsky until game four and in game four Peter Morazic let up like five as well so uh like I don't even know why they pulled I don't know why they went to Morazic that didn't make a ton of sense to me it wasn't Nadelkovich's fault they had zero goals at five on five through two games but um they're down three one now because you know they lost six four the other night um and they play uh, they actually get two days off, so they play tomorrow for game uh, game five. But um, I don't know. I, I think the Hurricanes will probably push at six, but I could see the Lightning much like they did to the Panthers, closing it out in six, just the way Vasilevsky's playing. But And, you know, the fact that the Hurricanes have been, you know, injured now too, um, um, they've lost a couple guys that have been pretty key pieces. Yeah, and, like, it's just got to be so disheartening to play Tampa because, like, they're just so good at so many positions. You need everything to go well. Yeah, I mean, like, literally, like, they're, they've outplayed, they've arguably outplayed Tampa. And it's like, oh, no, the, by the way, that Vesna goalie who didn't look as great down the stretch, yeah, no, he's back to just being a Vesna goalie. Yeah, he's just absolutely freaking amazing. Or, like, you outshoot them while they still have uh, some of the best goal scorers in the league. So sometimes. Yeah, and, one, and that was game four. Every time they went on the, every time they took a penalty, the Tampa would just go out and score, you know, like. Yeah. Like, no, we're, we're just going to pot three out of four on the power play. Like, we're, we're good. Yep, they're just that good. So, yeah, that, that's why they're, they're definitely another team that I think will be a force to be reckoned with, um, you know, going forward here. But um, it'll be interesting to see if the Hurricanes can climb back. No Trocek. Trocek looks like he's done. Uh, no Niederreiter um, either. So that that's two tough, uh, tough losses, of course, as well. 
Yeah, because playing Tampa so hard at full strength, never mind. Down men. Yeah, when when two of your top seven forwards are down, you know, like yeah, yeah you're Especially you're gonna be pressed no matter who you are. I don't think Tampa has anyone hurt, do they? Or anyone nope. <laughs> the two injuries listed on Sportsnet are Marion Gabrick and Anders Nielsen. There you go. Two two guys who are very very famously on their LTIR, so they could make it work this year. But um, yeah, I I, uh, I don't know. I I feel bad for Carolina, um, you know. But I mean, they still have a good team. This is a team that you know, and we'll get into my thing more officially when they do get eliminated. But this is a team I'm really curious to see what they do this offseason because obviously Dougie Hamilton's up, and if Dougie Hamilton leaves, it's not that this team isn't good, but I think they take a sign you know, a step back from you know the contender status we see them as right now yeah absolutely because like this like they're still they still have a very bright future very smart management but like if you think about like the ebbs and flows this is like a mini peak for them and they might have to retool for a year or two to come back stronger yep absolutely so um you know we'll see what happens there and then the final series this one is not surprising at all in my opinion uh, Boston and the Islanders just tied at two apiece. Islanders just somehow keep getting it done. It does not matter if they're getting outplayed, if they're not getting outplayed. Um, they bring it to overtime. They win. Uh, you know, the, I don't. I, game four didn't go to overtime, but um, um, game five goes tonight as well. Uh, I would. I can see this going. Well, obviously it has to go six now, but I could see this one going seven as well, just in classic Islanders and Bruins fashion, really. Yeah, I had picked the Bruins in like five. And of course, the Islanders have found a way in spite of all rational uh, arguments. Probably should have saw that one coming. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm just looking through the games. Like, the, the other night, the shots were close. I think the Islanders actually outshot them. But a couple night, uh the 2 1 overtime Boston win to put it up 2 1. They outshot them 41 29. Um, in game two, Boston shot them 42-39 in overtime and lost. So it, it's been like close enough, right? Like game one wasn't very close, but the shots were, yeah, the shots were 39-22 for uh, Boston. But, um, you know, it's been for, through the past three games, it has been a legitimate close series. It's not like uh, um, the Islanders have just been getting dominated or anything, but it's just a classic Islanders series. They try and clog up the middle, don't let much happen and and go from there. And that's what it's been then. Um, you know, for that reason, I, I really do hope that uh, um, we see Boston move on, um, you know, as much as I don't really care to give Boston success, but I just, I don't want to watch the Islanders in another conference final. Yeah, not at all. I hate watching the Islanders play hockey. It's just like, it's not fun. Like, it's not fun until you get into overtime and it can be sudden death, obviously, but it's just not yeah, it's not something I really just actively want to watch for 60 minutes of my night, you know? Yeah, because I, I saw something and it was like, maybe I haven't been a little too harsh on them because somebody was like, oh, they're not talented at all. I was like, well, we just don't actually tend to care about defensive talent. And at this point, I will absolutely give you that. They're clearly defensively talented or Trotz is a god or some combination of the two. But like that doesn't make it enjoyable to watch. You can fully admit team's good and be like, I still don't want to watch these guys. Yeah, but like I there's absolutely. nothing wrong with that on either on either side, right? Like it doesn't mean they need to change anything they're doing because two guys from Elmira don't like it, but you know yeah, that's exactly. just what it is. And it's smart for them because if they try to open it up, it's not going to go well. But yeah, yeah but just <laughs> exactly. Um, big news from this past week as well. Uh, 
Seth Jones is rumored to have said he's going to test out free agency, which is basically rumor for you may as well trade me this year. I'm not re-signing with you guys. Get me somewhere else. Um, this is an interesting one, a really, really interesting one. Uh, obviously, just another notch in the, the Columbus hat of players that uh, don't want to stay. Um, Torts is gone, so I don't think you can blame Torts on that solely now. Um, not that you ever really could, but uh, it's even more interesting because me and you would both say Seth Jones is really overrated. So what do you do as a team who's looking to trade for him? I really think some team is going to overpay for him in free agency or if they trade for him and sign him to an extension. Um, and that doesn't even include the package they're going to give up if they trade for him. Like, I think he's going to get probably north of $8 million in free agency. And that is lunacy to me. Yeah. And some team has probably been slightly saved from themselves because I think there were realities with inflation where Seth Jones was a double digit like million dollar defenseman. Yeah. I mean, like even he admitted he sucked this year and I feel like people just kind of gave him a path because pass because of, you know, the, the past couple of years that Columbus has had, but like, like the, the truth is he just hasn't been like, he has not been the top 10 defenseman. He gets the allure of for a, ever really at any point in his career. He never has like yeah, in terms like of underlying metrics anyways. Yeah, and it was one of those fun things like watching him play the Leafs because you all you hear all these stories about the how good he is, and then you look at the numbers and you're like, oh, he ends up looking terrible. Well, you watch him like absolutely booling up and down the ice over and over and over and over again, and yet at the end of the game, you're just like, oh yeah, he got like outshot and outscored grossly and couldn't uh, defend the uh, blue line at all against the Leafs' good players, and you can kind of see why his uh, metrics end up so terrible in spite of the fact that he does so many other things so well. Yeah. It was it really in shades of like CC and FNAF pairing in 2017, except Seth, Seth Jones has actual offensive talent. So it's not quite as bad as just two pylons getting wrecked in their own end, but held yeah. up by save percentage. But that's definitely what the defensive game looked like because yeah, he just like, and same with like people were praising him in that quadruple overtime game against Tampa. It's like the dude has been outshot like, or out chance, like, 40 to 20 when he's on the ice. And obviously that's not all Seth Jones fault, but it's like, you look on the other side, Victor Hedman's doing the same thing, except he's out shooting people 40 to 20 while on the ice. It's like, why is Seth Jones getting the praise here? And yeah, like I just, I, it's honestly like, it's, it's kind of crazy to me to think about it because I I've seen people make arguments on Twitter. It's like, yeah, even if his metrics isn't good, he's still a 26 year old right-handed defenseman. Who's like, had really good seasons. Like, well, no, the fact is he really has not by any metrics had really good seasons, except for if you look, but points, I think he had a really good season one year, but it's like by anything other than that, it's just, he plays a lot of ice time and then people automatically think he's good, but for whatever reason, you know, like that's never translated to anything. Yeah. And like, admittedly, um, he used to look better when we know knew less about hockey, basically. Like, his Corsi numbers have always looked better than his uh, XG. So if you looked, there was a time where if you looked, he was a defenseman who was huge, played a ton of minutes, put up a ton of points, did well on the power play, had an amazing Corsi, as best we can tell, and had the good penalty differential. So, like, there were signs there, and he was young then, too. But now we, we know so much more, and we know that, like, the XG really shows us that he just gets absolutely filled in defensively. Yeah. And like, 
like, I don't know. Like, I just, I, I can understand an like, argument that, you know, maybe he's, he's probably not as bad as, you know, the stats make him out to be, but he's definitely nowhere near as good as what the eye test people seem to try and push him has is this undisputed top number one defenseman. It's like, no, like at the very bit, like the, the stats say he's probably not more than like a number four or whatever, maybe even worse than that. Like, is he a two or three? Maybe if he doesn't have to get used quite as much, but it's like, even like just his partner has way better. Like Zach Wierenski has actual good numbers and like, doesn't get any of the credit for it. But like, Seth Jones struggles all the time or, you know, from an analytics point struggles all the time, but you know, it's still just pushed as this number one defenseman. So I really don't know. Like I, I really do think that it's going to look like a Jacob Truba kind of contract where they're going to pay a first, probably a better player or just as good of a player as Seth Jones for Seth Jones, sign him to like an eight by eight and be like a year in, Ooh, this was probably a mistake. Yeah. It really has all the makings of something that like happens all of like the mainstream people are like, oh, what an awesome uh, move. And then like a year later, everybody is just consensus. Like, oh yeah, that was absolutely terrible. And we should have all known at the time. There's no excuse to not know it at this point. Yeah, but like people are still like, I heard Marner for Seth Jones rumors get talked about on the radio all the time last week. It was like, oh, why yeah. do you do like, why do you do this to yourself? I bet you that would make at least half of the Leafs fan base happy. Oh, probably more than half. I bet you would make 85% of it happy. Yeah, which would and that would just be disastrous. Yeah, like that. I don't think you would like. Yeah, like it, that. Yeah, that would be so 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 bad. But like, I, I don't know. I tweeted out this week. To, yes, today actually too, because it was the one Boston guy. But it's like it's kind of crazy to me how many like just writers show their ass about how they do not pay attention to the league they're supposed to cover at all. Yeah, like, like just don't know. <laughs> thing about no, and like sometimes they don't know a thing about their own team. But like even just like. So like, there's people like Steve Dangle who obviously I don't care to like, – no offense to Steve Dangle, but I don't care to listen to what he has to say about most of the other teams but the Leafs because I know he's a diehard Leafs fan, and that's okay. But, like, if you're a team covering the Boston Bru- – or you're a reporter covering the Boston Bruins, at the very least you should have base knowledge of, like, what the other teams in your division strength and weaknesses are. And if you're looking at Florida and going, yeah, Bobrovsky's probably still a strength they want to trade – for 50% retain or whatever, or that Toronto should want to trade for. It's like, well, no, like you, like you're clearly just have not paid attention to anything for four years now. Yeah. Like this is like the worst contract in the entire league. Why are you thinking this is something that people want? Yeah. And it's it just like, it happens all the time. Like just, you know, God bless like O-Dog as well. Like I, I think he's like, I listen to Jeff O'Neill on overdrive every day and I think he's really funny, but like he always talk about, he's like, well, I don't know why people expect me to know this player and this player and other markets. Like, cause you're covering the NHL. It's like, yeah, I get your primary focus on the Leafs, but that doesn't mean you should just have your head in the sand when it comes to everything else. Yeah. Like there's so, the thing with working in hockey is what's expected of you is rightfully higher because like, it's such a competitive industry that there's so many talented people that can't get a job. If you're one of the, the ones who does have a job and one of the more prominent people for a large company, you should have, it's, People should like have the right to be pissed at you if you have no fucking clue what's going on. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like it just feels like it happens so often. But you know, I got on a bit of a tangent. But um, yeah, I don't know. Like, getting back to the Seth Jones stuff, I'm sure we'll talk about this lots this summer. I could see him being moved at the draft. I think. Um, yeah, that would make a lot of sense. 
I think Columbus should be able to just crush this trade too. Oh, I would be shocked. Like if they lose this trade, uh, Kekalina needs to just retire, honestly. Yep. Like this is the making of just classic, like we know this is going to be an overpayment for some team on day one. Um, yeah. The only reason I could see him not winning this trade as, as as much as we thought is maybe if Seth Jones actually wants to test out the free agent market and will not sign an extension, no matter where he gets traded to, I could see that bringing the trade value down. Cause now it's just a one year rental. But even then I think that's a one year rental for Seth Jones of what his value is perceived around the league is probably a first round pick and a prospect for starters. Right. Yeah. And like a good prospect too, like a Brandstrom kind of a prospect, I would think. Yeah. Or like, yeah, maybe slightly less, but but something around there for sure. Like, so um, I, don't, I don't know who's going to be in on that. Like, I, I feel like there will be a bunch of teams kicking tires. Um, I've seen the Canucks joked around a lot. Uh, that would not shock me if they could figure out how to make it work. But I think they may have capped themselves out of that uh, market, maybe. Um, Edmonton's another team I've seen people throw around, which, again, wouldn't shock me. Would be hilarious. I hope for Connor McDavid's sake they do not do that. Um, I, I don't know. There'll definitely be a handful of teams that are in trying to get him. And I just, I, I feel like no matter what, it's probably going to be a mistake. Yeah. It'll probably be a pretty good bidding war and it's probably going to suck whoever does it. And I think the Canucks fans should be very happy. Jim Benning has priced himself out of that because that could like, Oh, just the dream partner for Quinn Hughes or whatever. I can see that just going terrible for them. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, uh, and you know how you, I can totally see Jim Benning just absolutely wanting to do it, right? Like it's a double-edged sword where it's like, oh yeah, we're it's good that we've capped ourselves out, but it, we've capped ourselves out because our team is so bad with or filled with bad contracts. But it's like at least we can't add one more, I guess, is the right side. But I would absolutely see people pushing like this is I've I've heard it actually on the radio again twice already this past week where it's like they're like it would be the perfect guy, you know, he can play eat a bunch of minutes, um, take the defensive responsibility away from. Um, Quinn Hughes, it's like, well, that's not what Seth Jones is good at. So that is going to be a disaster. Yep. That'll be ugly. And I I hope he goes somewhere like that or like an Edmonton that they think that's all their problems solved. Yeah. And you know what's gonna happen though, is wherever he goes, and even if it is like an Edmonton or Vancouver, they're gonna have like a he's gonna have like an, an on ice save percentage like nine forty five and people are like see this is absolutely worth it for the first year or whatever. And then he's gonna get this massive contract extension and it's gonna be a disaster. Oh, that would be beautiful. But um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll definitely track that as we go on to the draft. Uh, we got a lot of stuff upcoming, obviously. Um, you know, the NHL playoffs are ongoing. Uh, Chase and I will have a you know, Vegas expansion draft one eventually coming up too. Um, uh, and then as we get in the off season, we will have a bunch of content, I think as well. I think we're going to probably do our top 10 goalie wingers, centers, defensemen, etc. as we had in the off season, but that's still a while away. So, um, Chase, unless, do you have anything else? No, I don't think so. Um, I don't either. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, you can find my stuff at lastwordonhockey.com. I've done two Seattle expansion draft pieces, actually, um, this past week. I did one on the Devils and one on the Sabres, kind of looking at who they will protect and who they will expose. Spoiler alert, both those teams fucking suck, so um, they're not going to lose a good player. Uh, it's good news for those two teams. Um, and I'll have, a, I'll have a Senators one coming out in on, I believe it's June 12th as well. So that is in five days or so i want to say like this weekend yeah saturday i think it's coming out so be sure to check that out uh, and then i've been doing a couple stuff on milehighhockey.com as well uh, chase had a blog out as well 
uh, you can find it probably on his pinned tweet, I would assume, on Twitter, right? Yeah, it'll be just right at the top if it's not pinned. Yeah, so you can find that at CM Hockey 66 on Twitter, and you can find me at NHL Sends and Stuff on Twitter. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you all next week.